so today uh, we're going to be talking about uh, two very dynamic evangelists slash preachers slash you name it. Um, and we're going to talk about the Assemblies of God. And we're also going to talk about an offshoot um, that occurred from the Assemblies of God known as Jesus Only or Oneness Pentecostals. can get this slide. Okay, there we go. Okay. So early Pentecostalism in the U.S. was a spontaneous grassroots Christian movement that had no central organizing body or hierarchy to regulate its practices and promotion. So for some, this was exciting, truly liberating experience of receiving spiritual renewal and power. But for others, it was the work of the devil, or at least it appeared that way. The first generation of Pentecostal believers faced immense criticism and ostracism from other Christians, most vehemently from the holiness movement from which they originated. Alma White, leader of the Pillar of Fire Church, a holiness Methodist denomination, wrote a book against the movement titled Demons and Tongues in 1910, and she called Pentecostal services satanic gibberish, and the tongue-speaking uh, and the services were the climax of demon worship. Famous holiness Methodist preacher W.B. Godby spoke of those at Azusa Street as Satan's preachers, jugglers, necromancers, enchanters, magicians, and all sorts of mendicants, or liars, frauds. To G. Campbell, Dr. G. Campbell Morgan, Pentecostalism was the last vomit of Satan. <laughs> Dr. R.A. Torrey thought it was emphatically not of God and founded by a sodomite. So, you know, the, a lot of this criticism got very personal and very, uh, very derogatory. The Pentecostal Church of the Nazarene, one of the largest holiness groups, was strongly opposed to the new Pentecostal movement. So to avoid confusion, the church changed its name to the Church of the Nazarene, which I'm sure many of you are, may be familiar with. A.B. Simpson's Christian and Missionary Alliance, CMA, negotiated a compromise unique for its time, and Simpson simply believed that Pentecostal tongue-speaking, while it might be a legitimate manifestation of the Holy Spirit, it wasn't necessary evidence of the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And this view on speaking in tongues ultimately led to what became known as the alliance position, articulated by A.W. Tozer, as seek not, forbid not. So we're going to take a very neutral posture. We're not going to encourage people to do this, but we're not going to try to prevent them either. Now, the first Pentecostal converts, as we know, came mainly from the holiness movement and held to a Wesleyan understanding of sanctification as a definite, instantaneous experience, 
and a second work of grace. But when large numbers of converts entered the movement from non-Wesleyan backgrounds, especially from Baptist churches, the idea of a second work of grace did not fit into a reformed perspective on salvation. In 1910, William Durham, we've talked about him before, of Chicago, first articulated the finished work doctrine, which located sanctification at the moment of salvation and held that after conversion, the Christian would progressively grow in grace in a lifelong process. Durham was also an important figure in the founding and development of the Assemblies of God, but this teaching about the finished work polarized the Pentecostal movement into two factions, divided between holiness Pentecostalism, where you have basically kind of a, almost a three-step process. You get saved, then you have a second experience of sanctification, total sanctification, and then baptism in the Holy Spirit, and the finished work doctrine where at salvation, you receive it all. You get it all when you become saved. You may have uh, subsequent encounters with the Holy Spirit. You have subsequent uh, fillings. You have, um, you know, you have ongoing experiences. You grow in grace. You come to know the Lord better. It's a continuous process. However, the finished work group began to experience more splits. The Wesleyan doctrine was strongest in the apostolic faith church, which views itself as being the successor of the Azusa Street Revival, as well as in the Congregational Holiness Church, Church of God, Cleveland, Tennessee, uh, Kojic, or the Church of God in Christ, and others. Now, the finished work doctrine would ultimately gain ascendancy among Pentecostals uh, and especially in the Assemblies of God, which became quite large, and uh, that was the first finished work Pentecostal denomination. But after 1911, most emerging Pentecostal denominations would adhere to this finished work doctrine. The Pentecostal movement split along racial lines as well, and we've talked about this, how many white Pentecostals left predominantly black Pentecostal churches, such as Kojic, in the early part of the 20th century. The white Pentecostal churches generally adhered to a congregational church governance structure. Remember, we talked about the Church of God in Christ having an Episcopal structure with regions or districts, with bishops over each district, okay? That's an Episcopal, that, that type of church governance is not, um, you know, when I say Episcopal, people think, oh, Episcopal church. No, Episcopal with a small e, um, that's basically a way of structuring a church in terms of how it's governed. Congregational structures are, are very different. Congregations are overseen by a board of elders but in some congregations, they could talk about these uh, people as shepherds. Sometimes they use the word bishops uh, or pastors. So you could, you know, if you, if you talk to someone from a church that said, we have, we have bishops, and then you ask more questions and you find out they have a congregational governance structure and the bishops are simply functioning as elders. 
But at the end of the day, what is the difference? A bishop is an elder, is an overseer. It's all kind of the same. However, different denominations have evolved different traditions in how they view the role of these, uh, these leaders. Elders are generally seen as responsible for the spiritual welfare of the congregation, while deacons are seen as uh, being responsible for the non-spiritual needs of the church. Elders hire the pastor in these types of churches. And for some of us, that may seem rather surprising. So the local church has a board of elders, and they, you know, when, when the church needs a new pastor, they put together the search committee, they interview people uh, to be the pastor, and they hire the pastor. The pastor often has no governing authority of any kind. In many churches, many of these types of churches, the pastor is not an elder, he isn't part of the church governance structure, and in many of these churches, they will remove the pastor almost at will. If they think the pastor is not doing a good job, if they don't like his sermons, etc., etc., they can fire him. Among the finished work Pentecostals, the new Assemblies of God would soon face another very important issue that emerged at a 1913 camp meeting. So at this camp meeting, during a baptism service, a pastor by the name of, or a preacher by the name of R.E. McAllister mentioned that the apostles baptized converts once in the name of Jesus Christ and that the words Father, Son, and Holy Ghost were never used in baptism. Um, many people have argued endlessly over, you know, this, the correct baptismal formula. I'll just call it that. But so now we have controversy about how to baptize, what is the correct baptismal formula, and people started to call into question the idea of the Trinity. And all of this uh, emerging controversy inspired another pastor evangelist named Frank Ewart. He claimed to have received a divine prophecy revealing a non-Trinitarian idea of God. Ewart believed that there was only one personality in the Godhead. There are not three persons. There is only Jesus Christ. And the terms Father and Holy Ghost are simply titles designating different aspects of Christ. And those who had been baptized in the Trinitarian fashion needed to submit to rebaptism in Jesus' name only. And further, Ewart believed that Jesus' name baptism only and the gift of tongues were essential for salvation. So you cannot be saved unless you have professed faith in Christ, you were baptized in the name of Jesus only, and you speak in tongues. Ewart and those who adopted his belief called themselves oneness or Jesus' name Pentecostals. Opponents of Ewart and his follow followers called them Jesus-only Pentecostals. And Jesus-only Pentecostals believe in one God who manifests himself at different times in different ways. First is Father, second is Son, and third is Holy Ghost. Now, essentially, this is simply a modern version of an ancient heresy known as modalism, sometimes called Sabellianism. 
uh, in the ancient church world, there was a person named Sibelius who advocated a similar belief. Uh, so modalists simply believe that there is just one God. He can appear at different times in different modes of existence. There is no trinity with one God in three persons. For Jesus only Pentecostals, Jesus Christ is God and God is one being only, not eternally existent as three persons. All right. <clears throat> Oops, I missed a, missed a slide. Over time, several oneness sects formed, most of which were predominantly black. The largest oneness movements today are the United Pentecostal Church International, which does have a lot of white members today, and the Pentecostal Assemblies of the World. The UPCI was organized in 1945 with the union of two predominantly white groups started earlier in the century. They do have some black membership. The PAW formed in 1918, but split along racial lines in 1924. And today, the PAW is predominantly black, and it's headquartered in Indianapolis, uh, Indiana. And I went on the websites of both of these groups. They, they still exist. They're large groups. Uh, they appear to be thriving. And there's almost nothing on their websites about a statement of faith or anything that would lead you to, you know, begin to think that they are not orthodox in their theology about the Trinity. All right, now we're going to turn to uh, a prominent evangelist during the early 20th century who started off as a baseball player. And this person is named Billy Sunday, and I'm wondering how many of you have heard the name Billy Sunday? Quite a few, yep. Um, but you may not know much about him. And I've, I'd certainly heard about Billy Sunday, but I too did not know much about him. And what we have pictured here is Billy Sunday's baseball card. Um, worth a lot today. Uh, so Billy Sunday was a baseball player in the early days of professional baseball. He was the first player to run all the bases in 14 seconds and one of the most skilled base stealers to play the game. Incidentally, for you baseball fans, he was not the greatest batter. Um, but he, he was a good, uh, you know, if he could, if he could hit the ball, <laughs> he, was, he was bound to uh, get on base, probably. He sometimes hung out with his Chicago White Stockings teammates. Uh, the Chicago White Sox were originally known as the Chicago White Stockings. He hung out with them in bars, but drank little. He was generally a quiet young man, friendly, but not boisterous. But Billy Sunday became a convert to Christianity after hearing preaching and singing going on outside the Pacific Garden Mission in Chicago in 1886. Remember, we've talked about the YMCA in Chicago, uh, very, very much a presence in Chicago in those times. Um, and mission work done by Salvation Army and other groups who did a lot of street preaching and especially tried to stand outside the bars and try to convert the people going into and out of the bars, trying to get them to stop their evil ways. Uh, so Sunday gave up baseball and took a big pay cut to become a preacher, first as a YMCA employee and then as a traveling evangelist. 
Now, as a preacher, he would gain far more fame than he had as an athlete, and he would pioneer evangelistic techniques and approaches that continue to be used today long after his death. The pulpit style he developed did not appeal to, as he called them, highbrows, but he was not concerned by that. He declared his audience to be working class people. And Sunday himself had been born into poverty, spent part of his childhood in an orphanage, and had little formal education, and had much in common with average people in early 20th century America. Sunday proclaimed, nowadays we think we are too smart to believe in the virgin birth of Jesus and too well-educated to believe in the resurrection. That's why people are going to the devil in multitudes. Except he would not have said it that calmly. <laughs> you know, I, I think a lot today, the term that would come to mind for someone uh, like Billy Sunday would be Helen Brimstone or Fire and Brimstone Preacher. <laughs> Sunday... Yeah, yeah. Sunday was master of the one-liner, which he would use to clinch his practical, illustration-filled sermons. And one of his most famous was, going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to a garage makes you an automobile. <laughs> True. After ministering with the YMCA, Sunday moved on to work with two other traveling evangelists, and then was invited to conduct a revival in Garner, Iowa. From then on, he was never without an invitation to preach, at first holding campaigns in Midwestern towns, and then after World War I, preaching in Boston, New York, and other major cities. Now, like some of the other evangelist preachers that we've talked about, um, uh, Charles Spurgeon um, and some of the others, much of his success was due to his wife, Helen Amelia Thompson. She organized the campaigns and did much of the advance work. So on the business end of things, his wife was really keeping this, uh, this whole ministry of his structured so that you know, they'd have enough money to do the work. She even tried to improve Billy's vocabulary in her letters to him, deliberately including words he would have to look up in the dictionary. <laughs> tried to class him up. Uh, you know, he was, he was committed, however, to reaching the, you know, the common man. And his preaching style was as unorthodox as the day allowed. His vocabulary was so rough. For example, I don't believe your own bastard theory of evolution either. I believe it's pure jackass nonsense. For people of this day, for someone, you know, a Christian to be using this kind of language, it was very shocking. Christian leaders cringed and they often publicly criticized him. But Sunday didn't care. I want to preach the gospel so plainly, he said, that men can come from the factories and not have to bring a dictionary. Sunday used his whole body and other objects, such as his chair in his sermons, <laughs> which he would sometimes fling around while preaching. And the picture up on the screen there is, uh, it's a newspaper illustration from the Wheeling, West Virginia, Intelligencer, 
from February 19th, 1912. So uh, I, I was able to find um, uh, online uh, inf uh, some information about this particular, uh, it, it was a crusade. It was very much like the Billy Graham crusades. He would come into town and the churches that knew he was coming because you know his wife is doing advanced work, kind of preparing the way, and the churches are getting ready because this guy's gonna breeze through town, a lot of people are gonna get saved, but what happens to them after they get saved? Well, they need to connect with a local church. And so the churches recognized this and began to prepare for uh, evangelists like Sunday and others who would come through. So, uh, you know, the newspapers, you know, this, again, all of this, all of this is, it's, it's entertainment. It's designed to attract attention. You know, this is, you know, this is a day before television, before radio is really widespread. People don't have much entertainment. They're working long, hard hours in farm fields, in factories, other, you know, forms of backbreaking labor. They don't have much in the way of entertainment. This is a show. This is entertainment. This is almost as good as the county fair. So anyway, you can see that, uh, you know, Sunday was quite flamboyant. It's almost, it's almost as if he borrowed from baseball uh, the physical, quote-unquote, language of baseball. You watch a baseball game, you see baseball players making signs, you, you see uh, coaches making signs, you see the umpires, you know, if somebody's safe at home, big gesture like this. These big, these big grand gestures that had to communicate across a baseball field could also, in this, in this context, communicate, or at least Billy Sunday felt they could communicate to the people he's, he's speaking to. Now, this picture, is, it's a little bit hard to see. It's a little, um, you know, it's old. Um, but the, again, this is a picture from the Wheeling, West Virginia Intelligencer. That's kind of a mouthful. Uh, from 1912, when Billy Sunday came through, the crowds were so big. They built these temporary structures, and this particular building was constructed in four days. People were so excited to have this guy come to town. By, the, by 1912, he was, he was famous throughout the United States. They would build these temporary structures. You know, it's basically a giant barn. It kind of reminds me of, you know, if you, go, if you go to fairgrounds, it looks like some of the buildings they put up at, at fairgrounds. Uh, it's the same kind of thing. Uh, so in order to accommodate, literally thousands of people are coming out. To, the, to these events, uh, Billy, sermons, uh, Billy Sunday's sermons are being conducted in what he called tabernacles. Now again, this is not a permanent structure. This is not an actual church building. Um, you know, I'm sure it could have caught on fire very easily. Um, and, but they would put these up in a few days and they were built in the cities and towns that hosted these revivals. Other people use them for other things, as we will see. Because now, oh, sorry, that's skipped ahead too far. Last slide for Billy Sunday, and then we'll talk about Amy, Amy Semple McPherson. 
So almost 25,000 people attended uh, Billy Sunday's campaign in Wheeling in 1912. And based on newspaper coverage, it felt like Sunday reached every Christian in Wheeling. In addition to his regular meetings, held sometimes three times a day, he also hosted special meetings for men and women separately. Even though the tabernacle seated 8,000 people, the meetings would get so full that people were turned away at the door for fear that overcrowding would violate fire regulations. And thousands of people traveled from out of town, filling up guest rooms and hotels. So Billy Sunday continued uh, you know, this itinerant evangelism uh, into the 1920s. He became less popular over time. And we'll talk about why a little later. Uh, but now we do, we do want to devote some time to Amy Semple McPherson. Uh, she was an early 20th century Pentecostal megachurch founder, pastor, evangelist, etc., you name it. Uh, she was doing it all. And, you know, at the time, the word megachurch did not exist. So that's, to, for me to call her a megachurch founder, that's a little anachronistic. In other words, I'm taking a present-day term and applying it to something in the past. But she was indeed just that. She founded a very, very large church. She was born in Canada in 1890, and she had early exposure to religion through her mother, Mildred, who worked with the poor in Salvation Army soup kitchens. As a child, she would play Salvation Army with classmates and preach sermons to dolls. As a teenager, Amy began to read novels and attended movies and dances, activities disapproved of by the Salvation Army and her father's Methodist religion. She was drifting. In high school, she encountered the theory of evolution, and she began to ask questions about faith and science, but was unsatisfied with the answers. This, at this point in American life, um, you know, the controversy about uh, evolution versus creationism was really becoming a big deal. And in the 1920s, there would be the Scopes trial. Um, and if you've never read anything about the Scopes trial, you should know about it. I encourage you to look, at, look it up online, Google the Scopes trial. She began to ask questions about faith and science, but was unsatisfied with the answers and she wrote into a Canadian newspaper, and she began to question the taxpayer-funded teaching of evolution in the public schools. This was her first exposure to fame as people nationwide responded to her letter. For Amy, it was the beginning of a lifelong crusade against teaching the theory of evolution, among other endeavors. At the age of 17, Amy attended Robert Semple's tent revival at Ingersoll, Ontario, Canada during the winter months of 1907 to 1908. Now, an impressionable young girl, she was not only converted to Christ, but also fell in love with the preacher. He was 27. She was 17. They were married August 28, 1908. They were involved in new church planning in Canada and the U.S. up until the beginning of 1909, and then they were ordained by William Durham of the Assemblies of God. 
Like many evangelical holiness and Pentecostal women, Amy found no barriers to participating in ministry and evangelism, especially since she was married to a man who was ordained to the ministry. In 1910, the couple left Chicago for China as missionaries, but illness uh, caused, they were both very, very sick, and she was pregnant. Um, it's lucky she survived. Her husband, Robert, died in a Hong Kong hospital on August 19th of 1910. Uh, Amy stayed in Hong Kong until her daughter, Roberta, was born on September 17th, went back to New York City, connected back up with her mom, who was working as a member of the Salvation Army in New York. Amy cared for baby, baby daughter Roberta and worked at the Glad Tidings Mission in New York. She met Harold McPherson, an accountant, and soon became Mrs. McPherson in 1911. After their son Rolf was born on March 13, 1913, they moved to Canada, where Amy continued evangelistic tent meetings, and in 1917, she began publishing a monthly meet, uh, magazine titled The Bridal Call, the church is the bride of Christ, the people of God are the bride of Christ, hence the name The Bridal Call. And uh, this was a way she could continue connecting with people who were following, beginning to follow her ministry. And Amy and Harold began a traveling ministry together. But the marriage to Harold did not last as he wanted a more settled life, and Amy wanted to continue with the traveling ministry, and they divorced in 1921. But Amy went back to itinerant ministry with her mom, traveling across what became known as the Sawdust Trail. This is the evangelistic tent meeting circuit of those early days where sawdust was put down under the large tents. In 1918, Amy and her mother moved to Los Angeles, California. Uh, her mother, Mildred, rented a large uh, philharmonic auditorium that saw, uh, seated 3,500 people, and people were lined up outside waiting to enter this place to hear Amy preach. Now, at this time, Los Angeles was becoming a popular vacation destination. Her ministry to tourists allowed her message to spread nationwide. But she didn't, you know, even though she was based in Los Angeles, she kept uh, traveling. And she went to Baltimore in 1919, and there she was discovered after conducting evangelistic services at the Lyric Opera House, where she performed faith healing demonstrations. During these events, the crowds in their religious ecstasy, as the newspapers put it, were barely kept under control. And Baltimore, as well as Los Angeles, became important centers for her ministry. In 1921, Amy decided to design and build Angelus Temple in Echo Park, Los Angeles, as a permanent church. And this is a current picture. It's huge. It's a mega church. It's still there. You can go visit it. So if you ever, you know, are in the Los Angeles area, you might go visit that church. On January 1st, 1923, the temple was dedicated, and Amy committed herself to pastoring her growing flock. While she continued to preach the four-square gospel, 
Jesus as the only Savior, the great physician, the baptizer with the Holy Spirit, and the coming bridegroom, she became a celebrity in a city of celebrities. The temple itself became a tourist attraction. An Angelus temple floats won prizes in Rose Bowl parades. The comings and goings of Sister, as she was affectionately known, from the city's Union Station, Union Station was a train station, drew more people than visits of presidents and other dignitaries. When she would come back into town, people would go to the train station to greet her. The temple is considered to be the first megachurch built in the United States, and its 125-foot-wide dome is the largest in North America at that time. And attendance at weekly services reached almost 10,000 people. Well-advertised, illustrated sermons offered the faithful who shunned nearby Hollywood entertainments a taste of theater. Parades, uniforms, award-winning bands, and catchy music attracted people of all ages. It was entertainment, again, in a day when many people didn't have that much in the way of entertainment. And it really, if you think about it, it was really Amy taking uh, her Salvation Army background, and it's, you know, this thing has grown a lot bigger than, you know, a Salvation Army brass band. It's becoming this big entertainment spectacle. Uh, not only that, but she launched ambitious programs to feed the hungry and respond to natural disasters, gain goodwill. There were earthquakes in uh, California, numerous earthquakes, where people, you know, were uh, severely impacted and they'd be collecting food and clothing and doing all this relief work uh, for people affected by the earthquakes. Amy's fundraising efforts were very successful. She was able to build the temple debt-free. In 1927, the ministry opened a food bank and a soup kitchen near the church distributing food, clothing, and blankets. And during the Great Depression, which was looming on the horizon, uh, their ministry did a lot to help the people of Los Angeles. And according to church records, Angeles Temple received 40 million visitors within the first seven years. At first, McPherson preached at every service, often in a dramatic scene that she put together to attract audiences. Her preaching incorporated props and scenery to illustrate her points. Now that picture, it's kind of hard, you know, again, these old pictures, it's kind of hard to see, but um, here she is in a crowd of people. She's outside somewhere, and you can, I don't know how well you can see it, but there are people standing kind of off to her, I guess that would be to her left or on the right side of the picture, with, you know, brass instruments. She's got a band out there, and there's crowds of people, you know, uh, they're just packed in there trying to listen to her. Um, you know, they didn't have great sound equipment back then, so, you know, you'd have to be more or less yelling your message and people would be crowding in so they could hear it. Uh, at the temple, McPherson employed a group of artists, electricians, decorators, and carpenters who built sets for each service. In one sermon, she rode a motorcycle across the stage to the pulpit, slammed the brakes, and raised a hand to shout, stop, you're speeding to hell. McPherson also worked on elaborate sacred operas, 
One production, The Iron Furnace, based on the Exodus story, saw Hollywood actors assist with obtaining costumes. You know, these days a lot of churches will do, uh, you know, uh, special shows at Christmas and they'll have singing and choirs and, and sometimes they will put on, um, they will even put on religious plays sometimes and some Pentecostal churches still do that, especially at the holidays today. McPherson gave up to 22 sermons a week, including lavish Sunday night services so large that extra trolleys and police were needed to help route the traffic through Echo Park. To finance the temple and its projects, collections were taken at every meeting. McPherson preached a conservative gospel, but used progressive methods, taking advantage of radio, movies, and stage acts. She attracted some women associated with modernism, but others were put off by the contrast between her message and her presentation. The battle between fundamentalists and modernists had escalated after World War I, and fundamentalists generally believed their faith should influence every aspect of their lives. But despite her modern style, McPherson aligned with the fundamentalists in seeking to eradicate modernism and secularism in homes, churches, schools, and communities. However, some would say that McPherson, by virtue of being a woman in ministry and also a divorced single woman, was in fact a modernist. The appeal of McPherson's revival events from 1919 to 1922 surpassed any touring event of theater or politics in American history. She broke attendance records recently set by Billy Sunday and frequently used his temporary tabernacle structures to hold her meetings when she was on the road. One such revival was held in a boxing ring and throughout the boxing event, she carried a sign reading, knock out the devil. So she's, you know how, the girls in the boxing matches will walk around with signs as the rounds go on. Well, she's in there, I would assume not dressed scantily, but she's holding up signs saying, knock out the devil. She wasn't afraid to go into this den of iniquity. When McPherson preached in San Diego, the city called in the National Guard to control a crowd of over 30,000 people. This was a big deal. Now, on September 13, 1931, Amy married David Hutton, a singer in one of Angelus Temple's productions. Hutton was a vaudeville and cabaret performer, and supposedly the scuttlebutt about him was that he had a questionable past with ladies and alcohol. Probably not the best person for her to be married to. And, of course, this marriage caused a scandal inside and out of the, the walls of the church, Many held views about, uh, you know, if somebody is divorced and their spouse is still alive, they should remain celibate. Uh, but by 1933, Amy was under considerable pressure and lawsuits had been filed against both her and her husband for various things. The stress of it all began to take its toll. David Hutton sought a divorce, which was granted in January of 1934. Along with all of the other work McPherson did, perhaps what is most important for us today is that she founded the Four Square Church. 
The church has its origins in a vision of the four square or full gospel. Again, this idea going back to the four gospels and you know what they show us, how they portray Christ to us. In a sermon uh, given in October of 1922 in Oakland, uh, she taught on chapter one of the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel had a vision of God as revealed to be four different aspects, a man, a lion, an ox, and an eagle. And many people have you know, taken this imagery and assigned this to um, the four gospels. Amy also saw this vision as representing the four aspects of Christ, Savior, Baptizer with the Holy Spirit, Healer, and soon-coming King. This was the vision and name she gave to the Four Square Church. Uh, Despite some affinities with Pentecostalism, the church's beliefs are interdenominational. And I would say today the Four Square Church is what you would think of as standard American evangelical. Um, I don't know how Pentecostal they are today. Um, I've known a few people in the Foursquare Church, not many, um, but, you know, these churches, as we describe them as they were in history, of course, churches, what are churches? They're just groups of people, and people change. Times change. What a church was 200 years ago may be very different than what, that same, it may, they may have retained the name, they may have retained a lot of the historical aspects of the church, but they may be very different today. Uh, and, and that's something that's important to keep in mind um, as we move, you know, we're going to continue moving forward with the series right up to the present day. So, um, based on this vision of the four square gospel, these four representations of Christ, Um, This is why the church has its name. Uh, Amy died in 1944, and her son Rolf took over, and he was the president and leader of the church uh, for 44 years. And uh, under his leadership, uh, the church became, again, kind of standard evangelical. Um, They moved, definitely moved away from flamboyance and scandal. Although there were some four square pastors in the past who, um, there was one who died not that long ago, who could get very animated in his preaching. The four square church formed the Pentecostal Fellowship of North America in 1948 in Des Moines, Iowa, and they linked up with the Assemblies of God, the Church of God, uh, Cleveland, Tennessee, uh, the Open Bible Standard Churches, the Pentecostal Holiness Church, and others. In 1994, it was reorganized as the Pentecostal Charismatic Churches of North America after combining with black churches, most significantly the Church of God in Christ. In 2022, the Four Square Church had 67,500 churches with 8.8 million members in 150 countries. So, they're thriving today. Um, and, you know, if you want to learn more about this denomination, you can look them up online. Uh, you can look up the Pentecostal Charismatic Churches of North America. It's a big organization, and they're very intentional about being diverse. And they have black and Latino members of their governance structure. 
and black and Latino churches as members. So that's heartening. Um, and I've got some uh, sources. Um, I took a lot of material from uh, a very important book by Vincent Sinan. Uh, he's probably the leading American scholar writing about holiness and Pentecostal groups in America. He's a theologian. He's probably got a doctor in front of his name, uh, but I don't remember where his doctorate's from. Um, this book, The Holiness Pentecostal Tradition, Charismatic Movements in the 20th Century, a goldmine of information if you, you know, want to study this more. Uh, another book is, uh, I don't know, yeah, that's, that's fairly readable. The type's not too small. Uh, an Introduction to Pentecostalism. Um, and then websites. There's a lot of information you can glean from the various church websites and these different organizations um, that have formed. All right, so that concludes uh, the material I have about these two important 20th century, uh, early 20th century evangelists, um, the Assemblies of God, the Oneness Pentecostals that split off from them. I think with the one, if, if I could leave you with anything, it is that, well, two things. Uh, you know, the, the controversy about the oneness Pentecostals uh, should, should make us think about how important good Orthodox understanding of correct Trinitarian theology is important. Even if you're charismatic, even if you're Pentecostal, you can't just throw out theology. You can't just make it up. You can't just rearrange it to suit whatever you think. Um, you've got to have it based on something. Um, and as these movements moved more and more away from mainstream American Protestantism, uh, some of the groups, frankly, got weird. Um, so theology is important. Um, and we can have good theology and be charismatics or Pentecostals at the same time. It's not an either or. Um, the other thing that's important to take away is let's think about why this, you know, the style of evangelism and the things that Amy Simple McPherson and Billy Sunday and others like them, they were so popular because in early 20th century America, Americans had very little entertainment close at hand. They worked long hours. They didn't, you know, there, there was no radio or TV for many Americans. Radio would come along later. And uh, movies were developed in the 1920s and would become more and more popular and accessible to Americans. But in, in, the, in the 1910s and 1920s, this was just plain entertainment for a lot of people. It met that need. Daniel. Have the mega churches died out? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I mean that's a question. That that's yeah, but then haven't a lot of the mega churches kind of co-opted entertainment in various ways? Big worship services with you know uh, rock bands and smoke and light shows. <laughs> yeah, you know, so now we have rock concerts in mega churches. 
I mean, you know, uh, okay, there's nothing wrong with having a show in and of itself, you know, but then, you know, again, you have to ask yourself, okay, it's one thing to attract people by having a show. The next thing is, how are you going to maintain that ongoing relationship with that person, getting them into the church and feeling a part of the body of Christ and not just, oh, I'm going to go to some entertainment. I, I go to a show every Sunday morning. So, I mean, it, you know, it's got its pros, it's got its cons, it's got its good points, it's got its bad points. If, if people are just coming for a show and nothing else, you know, but if you can attract people initially with a big production that looks pretty awesome, maybe they'll stick around long enough to really hear the gospel. That's the hope. Now, another thing is, we are going to be talking about Billy Graham, of course. Can't talk about uh, American religious life without, and I'll, I'll do a whole session just on Billy Graham. Um, but Billy Graham, you know, used a lot of the methods that were pioneered by people like Sunday and McPherson, and that is, when you have an itinerant ministry, you've got to connect with the local churches. You do not want people who are getting saved at crusades and meetings, tent meetings, to just go off and, you know, never progress in Christ. Christiana. I'm not sure. I'm going to have to research that um, because I don't know a ton about Billy Graham's uh, early life. Um, I just know more about what happened after he became a Christian. I will definitely research that. Mordecai Ham. Okay. Yeah. I mean, there were there were you know. Sunday and McPherson were, you know, the big names. There were tons of people doing these kinds of things all throughout the United States. So, all right, well, I want to give you guys uh, time for a break, so we'll wrap up here for today. <laughs>